Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Free Reads. This summer, I've been attending a lot of conventions, and I recently participated in a couple of panels that considered what writers really want. Sure, at the start of our careers, all we can think of is breaking into print. But after we get a few sales under our belts, we let our career imaginations and ambitions soar. For years now, I have been content to be a science fiction writer. No, content understates my feelings about my career. I am pleased and happy to be a science fiction writer. But what bugs me is the prejudice that certain other writers and critics have about my chosen genre. Science fiction has won some significant battles, but the war for the hearts and minds of the reading public continues. For my part, in addition to writing as well as I can, I also would like to see more science fiction in some of the top literary markets, especially some science fiction written by me. So, here has been my not-so-secret lifelong ambition to break into The New Yorker. Twenty or thirty years ago, I was making a more concerted effort to turn this trick. More recently, it has become less important to me. However, I thought Crazy Me might be New Yorker material, so I submitted it there before I sent it to my more traditional markets. For my pains, <laughs> I got yet another rejection for my collection. But I am not daunted. One of these days, one of these days. And I have to say, placing Crazy Me at Tor.com was a real coup. At any rate, enough whining. You want to meet someone with real problems? How about Dr. Ken Takumi and his doppelganger, Crazy Me? Amisha has decided to educate me about beer. Ben Stout, she says, finishing the pour. She sets the bottle down in front of me, then picks up her own glass, which is already full. It's from that brewery in Salem. There's a picture of Ben Franklin on the bottle's label, and beneath it, the slogan, Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. I consider telling her that studies show consumption of half a liter of beer a day increases risk of bowel and liver cancer by 20%, but I don't want her to know that the poor, deluded me she thinks she is with is still snoozing back at our house. Hold it up to the light, she says. I do, and across the restaurant, the waitress nods, mistaking the gesture for a summons. It's dark. Yes, it is, Amisha says. You could view the total eclipse of the sun through this beer. And look at that head. You leave it alone, and it'll still be standing tall at closing. But why would we do that? I offer my glass to her, and we clink. When she sips her beer, it leaves a little foam mustache on her upper lip. Her tongue darts out to wipe it away. She catches me watching her and grins. What? she says, her voice low in her throat. You, uh, want some of this? She licks her bottom lip. Absolutely. The waitress arrives, and she is too eager by half. Business is slow for a Thursday night. There are just two other couples in the place. This suits me fine. 
people make me nervous, which is why I don't get out much. I order the jambalaya pasta, and Amisha gets the garlic-rubbed pork tenderloin. So what do you taste, she says. Describe it to me. I don't know. I hadn't realized that she was so crazy about beer. It's, uh, it's kind of bitter and thick. No, rich. I click my tongue against the roof of my mouth. There's something. Malt? Definitely, she nods. I get a little bit of smoke and some oats. It's an oatmeal stout, of course. And a note of vanilla. Wow, I salute her. You have great taste buds, among other things. I like beer, she says, and I like you, especially since you don't seem to know much about beer. I raise my hand in protest. Beer is 4% alcohol, 6% unfermented carbohydrates, a half percent protein, a half percent ash, and 89% water. Okay, okay. She cocks her head to one side and fixes me with an appraising stare. You've bought your share of sixes in your day. Bud, Miller, Michelob if you're splurging. Am I right? Actually, I like Corona. Mas cerveza, por favor. We drink to that. You know what bugs me? She runs a finger around the rim of her glass. Beer commercials. They all assume that women don't like beer. Oh, what makes you say that? because the women never get to drink anything. The truck drivers are slogging down cool ones, fishermen, the quarterbacks, the goddamn cowboys, and the women are serving it to them, or oogling them, or lying on towels working on their tans. What is it with beer commercials on the beach? I have never heard a rant before. <laughs> That's where the bikinis are. I like it. Passion is thin on the ground. In the garage. It's not good. I read somewhere that we're a quarter of the market. Give me just one commercial in four. That's all I ask. One in ten. She notices that I'm smiling at her and shakes her head. Yikes, she said. Where did all that come from? I don't know, but it's kind of sexy. It's just that they're all accessories, you know? Waitresses, girlfriends, bimbos. She reaches across the table and flicks her middle finger against the meat of my hand, as if I'm not paying attention. I am not an accessory, doctor. How crazy is crazy me? <laughs> That's a matter of disagreement between the two of us. If you consult the DSM, you would have to say that he has bipolar symptoms with regular hypomanic and dysthymic mood swings. He has mild agoraphobia, which is actually something of a relief. I don't approve of him leaving the house, pretending to be me, although it happens. I'm lucky, I guess, that he's mostly content to hang around the garage, looking at his websites, worrying about asteroids or antibiotic-resistant bacteria or the 30-point drop in the Consumer Confidence Index. And then, of course, <laughs> there is dissociative identity disorder, except that he actually is my multiple personality. It's just that he has a body all his own to play with. For all that, he copes. His computer monitor is his window on the world. He has a Facebook page and still posts to his blog, Kafka's Laugh Track. He shows flashes of genuine insight into the people we know, and he did come up with those shrewd investments. He's the reason I was able to pay off my student loans 
four years early. I've seen him maintain a facade of normality for days at a time. Given that the country is in crisis, he argues, I'm the one who's maladjusted. He likes to call me deluded me. After dinner, we decide to cruise back to Amisha's house. The heat of the day has passed, so we roll the windows down. We're listening to Miles Davis' sultry trumpet work on Birth of the Cool when Amisha sits upright and then leans out her window. You all right, I say? Fire, she says. Smell it? No, I say, but then I do. Pull over. We're still rolling when she pops out of the car onto the sidewalk. She turns slowly beside the open door as the car dings at her. Take a left. She swings back to her seat. I think it's down near the park. Is this a good idea, I say? If these are the end times, we can grab a front row seat. Her smile is so bright that it's scary. In the late 19th century, Grandview Street was one of the most coveted addresses in town. The mansions opposite Lowell Park were built as monuments to the style and wealth of the Gilded Age. In the middle of the 20th century, the park became disreputable. Then the wealthy packed up their Lincolns and Caddies and removed to country estates. One by one, the great houses were carved up into shabby apartments. Now the neighborhood needed a shave and a haircut. 129 Grandview might once have been a jewel of Queen Anne-style architecture. Its asymmetrical facade is dominated by a brooding gable cantilevered over a rotten porch. The front door and the windows on the first floor are boarded up. Its fish-scale shingles had been green back in the Reagan administration. Now they are the color of bile. The fire is on the second floor of the abandoned mansion's octagonal tower. Through a dirty Palladian window, I can see tongues of flame licking at the interior. A clump of six or seven people gawks at an old lady in a flowered house dress who has stretched a garden hose from next door. The good neighbor sprays the tower, but the water just splashes against the window and cascades down the shingles. I've never seen a house on fire before, says Amisha, as she drags me toward the group. Where's the fire department, I ask. We called ten minutes ago, one of the onlookers says. As the fire climbs to the third story of the tower, I begin to make out my companions. Their faces are wrapped in the golden light. Their bodies are shadows. The hose isn't doing any good, someone says. Maybe it's me. It's certainly what I'm thinking. A kid breaks away from us, runs up to the old woman, and yells at her. She shakes her head. He stoops to pick up a rock and sets himself close to the house. Don't! The man is standing right next to me, and his shout slaps me in the ear. You'll let it breathe! Too late. When the kid heaves the rock, the entire window blows out with a crash. He thrusts hands over his head to shield himself as he dances through the shower of glass. My God, cries Amisha. What was that? Her arm circles my waist. I hear a gluey laugh to my right. That window must have been pretty damn hot. Smoke billows through the jagged hole. I read online somewhere that a house fire can reach 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, I say, and pull Amisha back several steps. Everyone in our group follows. Where's the fire department? asks a new arrival. They called ten minutes ago, says Amisha. Fifteen, someone corrects her. The kid yanks the hose away from the old lady and redirects its thin stream of water, which disappears uselessly into the burning tower. He might as well try pissing on the fire. 
More and more flames peek through the smoke. The shingles directly above the broken window are scorching. By the time the fire department pumper arrives, 129 Grandview is fully involved in flame. Maybe a dozen fire chasers have swarmed from around town to witness the spectacle. Firefighters herd us back to the far side of Grandview as the first water cannons begin to rain onto flames, flapping like flags on the roof. The old lady who'd lost her hose is huddled on a lawn chair a few feet away. She is wrapped in a pink blanket and is humming tunelessly. Her tears catch the light. Amisha giggles. It's a jack-o'-lantern in the house, she points. Fire eyes and the mouth. She sways, and I steady her with an arm around her waist. She devours the burning mansion with her eyes. Her blouse is riding up slightly, and I can feel a ribbon of hot skin above the elastic of her slacks. She presses a hand to my chest in her excitement. She hasn't had that much to drink. I think it must be the fire that has intoxicated her. Now the windows in the third floor of the house begin to weep as well. Drips of melting flame fall on the overgrown yews planted along the foundation. With a whoosh that sounds like the night breaking, the roof collapses and flings a galaxy of sparks into the sky. People clap. Amisha starts when my pinky slips inside her waistband. Hey. What? I murmur. This isn't about the house anymore. Now the fire is on our cheeks. Is this what I think it is? she asks. Rome is burning. Two, three fingers now, stretching. Let's fiddle. I want to nuzzle the glisten of sweat on her upper lip. Here? I push a kiss onto her ear and whisper, It's dark in the park. Of course, this is a ridiculous and dangerous idea, but <laughs> I am crazy with lust. I have been too long in the garage, so I guide her down Grandview. Three houses in, we cut across a wild lawn and skirt a lost fence. The lot backs up to a mixed stand of hemlock and white pine. The park is dark, but the fire throws enough light that I can see to kick away the fallen branches that block our way. I unbutton her blouse and tug the straps of her bra down her arms. She yanks my polo shirt over my head and flings it over her shoulder. Um, I'm going to need that back eventually, I say. Eventually can wait, doctor. She licks beneath my eye. My zipper is down. I'm kissing her breasts. My shorts are around my ankles. This is something deluded me would never do. She giggles. What if someone sees us? Well, then we'll charge admission. I'm on my knees. My face is between her legs. Then I let myself ease backwards. She's on top of me. There is so much clamor from the fire. Part of me is with her, but another part hears the screech of sirens, the bleat of horns, the sputter of police radios, and the crunch of the dying house. But when she breathes into my mouth, <laughs> there is no past to regret, no future to fear. When we are finished, she rests on top of me and laughs. I can feel her laughter in my chest. <laughs> it's catching. Is this you or crazy, Ken? She says. 
You can't tell the difference. I have to be careful here. Great. Crazy Ken is funnier. She wriggles her hips. You're sexier. Someone up at 129 Granville is shouting, Lor! Lo! It's darker here than it was a few minutes ago. Maybe they have the fire under control. I'm wondering if I'm going to be able to find my shirt. I hear something moving close by and to the left. A twig snaps. Leaves rustle. What was that? I spread my fingers across her naked buttocks, as if that might preserve her dignity. Squirrels, she says. Or raccoons. She props herself up and peers into the night. Or wolves. <laughs> we don't have wolves here. No, she says. At least, not yet. I got my B.S. in biology from Ohio State and graduated magna cum laude from med school at the University of Cincinnati. I interned at Pennsylvania Presbyterian in Philadelphia and did my residency in ophthalmology at the University of Michigan's W.K. Kellogg Eye Center. I'm a doctor of medicine, a scientist. How do I explain what is happening here? It is hopeless. But it's not only me. The whole world seems to be flying apart. AccuWeather forecast calls for a hazy, hot, humid day with highs this afternoon approaching the upper 90s. I reach across the bed, swat at the clock radio, and miss. The weight of too much sleep skews my aim. Today's air quality index is expected to reach unhealthy levels, which has led EPA to issue an advisory calling for people at risk to limit outdoor activities and refrain from strenuous. The next time I kill it. I raise my head to peer at the LED in the clock's face. It reads 545. Something is wrong. The numbers go blurry. I blink at the darkness. 545 AM. Great. I have slept. What? Thirteen hours? Amisha will be furious. I've, I've missed our date. She already thinks I take her for granted. I stumble to the bathroom, piss, wash my face, and brush my teeth. On my way to the kitchen, I check the answering machine in the front hall, dreading Amisha's message. The light is steady, unblinking. Just to be sure, I hit play. You have no new messages. Hmm, here's a mystery that will have to wait for coffee. The time may be out of joint, but I have to keep my priorities straight. When the coffee is brewing, I cross the door to the garage. Hey! I knock. You in there? No answer. I open the door. His space is dark except for the bright blue eye of the computer screen. I flick the light switch. We have a single bay garage with no windows. It can be unbearable in the summer, so he leaves the overhead door open a crack to let in air. The walls are sheetrock that I taped and mudded but never bothered to paint. The floor is bare cement. There isn't room for much furniture. A blue, queen-sized futon that folds into a couch during the day. Three filing cabinets crammed with who-knows-what craziness. A chest of drawers that used to be in our Grandpa Takumi's bedroom in the cottage in Vermont. Shelves filled with books that we'll probably never read again. It's all gathered around an oriental rug we inherited from our ex-mother-in-law, Susan. 
Off to one side is the red formica kitchen table with steel trim that we bought at the yard sale down the street. There's an open pizza box. Crusts are scattered across the tabletop. Never eat the crispy edges of a slice. They look too much like dog biscuits. Hello? I take the three steps from the house down to the garage. There's nobody here. The drumbeat in my chest is making me dizzy, so I drop onto the chair in front of the computer. I must have jiggled the mouse because the angelfish in the aquarium screensaver freeze, and then I'm looking at our Facebook page. Our profile picture is of us standing on our dock with Ledge Lake in the background. We're not smiling exactly, but we seem to be amused. I can't remember who took that picture, him or me. I discover that we now have 452 friends. I don't pay much attention to Facebook. That's his thing. Even though he tells me what he does when I'm gone, it's all mist and murmurs. I'm supposed to remember his hobbies when I forget what I had for lunch yesterday or what patients I saw last week. As I scroll down the list, I realize I know hardly any of our new friends. Who is Lorinda Lawrence, for example? George Drozen? Is that where he is now? Out with Cindy Ostrowski? Whoever she is. No, I know exactly where he is. I just don't want to think about it. Idly, I click the inbox to remind myself what all our friends are saying to us. We get a lot of invitations to Greenpeace events. Several dozen people sent private messages for our birthday in May. And then I spot the note from Michelle Haverney. Only the face in the profile picture isn't that of our Michelle from 1984. It's a woman our age, gray and pinched and disappointed. She writes, An ophthalmologist? Oh, my. That means you're a doctor, right? I get confused between ophthalmologist and optometrist. I know that optician is the guy who sells you the glasses. So what are you looking for after all these years, Dr. Ken Takumi? What do you see? But our Michelle is 14, and she is sitting next to us on a picnic table over on the other side of Ledge Lake at the State Park campground, and we've got Madonna claiming she's <laughs> like a virgin on the boombox, and why not? Anything was possible back then. No one can see us but the chipmunks. It's the freshman class picnic, and it's sunny, and the breeze carries the warm promise of summer. We don't know yet, and Michelle will be moving to Idaho in September. We've been wanting to kiss her since the march to Lincoln Square on Earth Day, and there is not much time, because soon a chaperone will come looking for us. She turns her face up toward us and closes her eyes, and we can see the color rising in her pale cheeks and the lock of auburn hair that has strayed across her forehead, and no... We don't want to close our eyes. We want to see it all, so we can return to this moment forever, our first true love. And so I do kiss her. But at the same time, I am watching myself brush my lips against hers and down the side of her face, and we are astounded at just how sweet life used to be. There's a crunching behind the futon. Hello? Silence. Someone there?
a black nose, then beady eyes set in a bandit's mask. The raccoon sticks its head out and assesses the situation. Then it emerges from behind the couch, snout brushing the floor and the cushion and the wall, as if it's surprised by the scent of its surroundings. Hey! It steps sideways and then goes up on its haunches, forepaws dangling, glances around the room, and then at its escape route beneath the garage door. It doesn't seem particularly afraid. Get! The raccoon drops onto all fours again. Get out! It ambles behind the futon with an odd humping gait, then comes back out with a pizza crust in its mouth. Scoot! It considers for a moment, and then scurries across the floor, under the door, and into the uncertain dawn. Will raccoons inherit the earth? I hope not. I hope we wise up before we find ourselves living next door to crazy me. This story first appeared online at Tor.com in May of 2011. Next on Free Reads, well, I'm not sure what comes next. But you can bet that I'll be back next week. I hope to see you then on the Free Reads Podcast. <laughs>